Hello, and welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything else in between. I'm Joe. No, I'm not. What a fun lie. I'm Hannah. And I'm Brenna. And today we were supposed to be doing an episode with Joe and me and our special guest, Hannah McGregor, because we're talking about Harry Potter. Mm. And many of you listeners have come to us from Hannah's podcast, Witch Please, which is about Harry Potter. Sure is. But Hannah and I had been hanging out in separate recording sessions for the last <laughs> 22 minutes. And Joe <laughs> has not shown up. And I'm willing to admit at this point, I'm slightly worried about him. It's a little worried. First, I was just trolling him madly, but he didn't respond to any of my insulting texts. So I'm a bit worried that something's really wrong or he's fallen asleep somewhere. It's late his time for this mm -hmm. recording. Yeah, um, so either he's like forgotten and gone to bed or he <laughs> has fallen into a well like the child star of a Lassie movie. And if it's the <laughs> latter, then this episode is going to be a very special episode of your podcast in which we have to, you have to edit in a, a stirring introduction. <laughs> oh, so awkward. But assuming that he's just asleep, this is just a fun episode where we troll Joe on his own podcast. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit worried I'm going to like wake up to an irate text from Joe's partner. I mean, like, what is wrong with you? Why are you such a monster? Clearly something happened. But until that time, I'm going to be jovial. Uh, <laughs> That's now, fun, because it kind of sounds like the adjectival version of Joe. <laughs> I was saying to Hannah off top that normally Joe does all the important stuff. Like, he schedules things, and he remembers what we say when, and he thinks about the structure of the show, and he tells me to move on when I'm talking too long about something, and we have none of those constraints in place today. Don't even worry about it. I listen to your podcast a lot. Let's start with homework. <laughs> hey, Brenna, do you have any homework? <laughs> Well, one of the reasons why I'm okay with Joe being absent <laughs> is because, no, I do not. <laughs> this is where, in lieu of actually doing my job and bringing something relevant to our listeners, mm -hmm. I instead make excuses based on my personal life. <laughs> oh, way. I moved to a totally, totally, totally different city and, like, painted a whole house and started a new job. That's my impression of you. Yeah. No, that's true. And this week has been particularly... A thing because I don't have childcare yet. Oh yeah. So little Groot is coming to work with me in the mornings, right. <laughs> where my colleagues are incredibly cool. People keep buying him presents. I think he thinks that's what my job is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, little Groot is also incredibly cool. So I get it. And he's been really chill. Like I have to say, like there's not every toddler you could put in an academic office for four hours at a time and he'd amuse okay. himself. So he's been great. But then we come home, we rush home, we get him down for his nap. I work a bit more while he's napping. Then he wakes up, I rush him over to this camp that he's at right now for oh. the last three hours of my workday. And uh, then I come home and I drink. So <laughs> <laughs> to forget where to fit in other reading. Oh just God, don't have don't the time right know. now. I don't even know. Can I tell you what I have been consuming over the past month? Because reading is the wrong word for it. Because <laughs> yeah. I've realized because I have been recording my reading on the Twitter mm -hmm. that I have not in fact read a book like during the month of August until I read Harry Potter. <laughs> yep. That was my July. Yeah. 
because I have been deep in a new game of Stardew Valley, which I'm going to argue is a young adult property. And do I hear that? Is that Joe? Hello, I'm here. The pitter-patter of little feet on the podcast? (laughs) I'm like Dobby. I've been hiding in the kitchen. (laughs) Listeners, he's not dead. Oh, that means we don't have to re-record the intro. (laughs) And it means he gets the hard work of figuring out how to splice together a Skype recording with a cast recording. That's not my problem. Mm, So good. (laughs) Never Brenna's problem. So good to add a technical (laughs) challenge. Um, Hannah was telling us about Stardew Valley, and she was making the argument that Stardew Valley is a YA property. Yes, and here is why. Uh, Stardew Valley, listeners, in case you are not familiar, is a really beautiful sort of sandbox uh, video game, which just means it's a sort of open world game that you can play in any order rather than having a sort of narrative progression through it. I have heard people describe it as Minecraft for queers, which I am convinced Ooh. is an accurate description. Essentially, the plot is that you inherit a farm from your grandfather when he dies. And once you arrive on this farm, you can decide whether you're going to farm, befriend the locals, fish, forage for local plants, go into the mines, fight monsters. There's all kinds of different stuff you can do, including dating people in the town. And one of the really delightful and super queer things about the game is that it is basically like it was all coded and programmed by this one guy. And he basically just coded everybody bisexual. So you can date, there's like a set number of characters who are dateable and you can date men and women You can date both men and women. You can date as many men and women as you like. You can get married to one of them and continue to date everybody else. It's all fine in the logic of the game. I love it. Wow. So sex positive. Yeah, it really is. And if you play Stardew Valley like Brenna, you can date none of them, refuse to make friends with any townspeople, and hang out with your vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but you get so many cutscenes when you date. Anyway, my (laughs) argument that it is YA is that all of the dateable characters in Stardew Valley live with their parents. Oh, yeah, that's oh, true. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, 100%. And so when you start dating these people, their parents are like, what will we do when they move away? And you're like, mm, they're moving 30 seconds away to my farm <laughs> with this fun new lesbian farmer who just moved in. It'll be fun. Jeez. <laughs> oh, but you really, like, there's so much, like, If you're dating one person and then start dating a second, the first one might might get jealous. And there's all of this like drama sort of programmed into it. And these cutscenes that you get as the relationships progress. And it very much in those cutscenes and the character tropes of the dateable characters, it is super drawing on YA tropes. Hmm. Cool. It sounds very addictive. Oh, 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 Joe. Oh, Joe. Hannah didn't read a book in August. She did not read a book in the month of August. Oh my goodness. (laughs) No time. No time. Have to date every girl at Stardew Valley. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. I'm going to make a big shout out for playing it on the Nintendo Switch too, Mm. because the controllers, I found the controls really non-intuitive on the computer, but the Switch port is really good. Yeah. Okay. I used to play it on my computer and I got it on iOS and it's great on the iPad as well. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. So I've been doing that while re-listening to the entirety of the Adventure Zone Balance campaign. So I'm really cool (laughs) and I don't read books, except for last night when I read the entirety of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, even though Brennan told me I could skim, even though I've definitely read this book before, because this book is (laughs) 
Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Super dope. Oh, I'm going to throw so much at your podcast. <laughs> okay, Joe, you don't get to do homework because you were late. That's so fine. let's get into Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. <sighs> And I feel like, Brenna, I'm going to give you five minutes to do this plot (laughs) summary, because if not, we will spend the next two hours talking just plot. No, that's fair. I need to be limited. Um, Okay, so (laughs) I also feel like I don't know how much detail we need to give, because it's (laughs) Harry Potter. (laughs) And yet, here's the thing. I actually found that I had replaced whole sections of the book with what just happens in the film. Mm -hmm. See, I've only seen the movie once. I saw it the Christmas it came out. And that was it. And I've only read the book once. So I was kind of revisiting it with, I totally forgotten most of what happens, put it that way. Okay, so Harry Potter tells the story of a young boy (laughs) named Harry Potter. (laughs) And he lives in a terrible family. Uh, He was left on the doorstep of his aunt and uncle, um, where he lives with them and his cousin. And they're just bad people. (laughs) They're They're genuinely awful, abusive people. They're unkind. They make him live in a cupboard under the stairs. They basically treat him like a servant while they wildly spoil their unpleasant biological child. They're not nice people. And one day, strange things, well, strange things have always kind of happened to Harry. But one day, the strange thing that happens is that owls start to try to leave him messages. And for some reason, his uncle is really adamant that he's not going to get to see what this message is, even though the owls are sending at first dozens and then hundreds of these letters. Brenna, this is too granular. You'll never get through it. <laughs> this is what happens. Welcome Brenna. to my life, Hannah. <laughs> Brenna, Brenna, why is this so much detail? I, really th- I didn't even talk about the snake. Oh my god. <laughs> Brenna, it's called On Harry's 11th Birthday. He finds out he's a wizard. He goes to Hogwarts. <laughs> Fine, you guys do the plot summary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. So he's being raised by this abusive aunt and uncle, and then on his 11th birthday, he finds out that he is actually a wizard via the arrival of Hagrid, the Hogwarts gamekeeper. He is whisked away into the magical world, first via a visit to Diagon Alley, where he sort of acquires his school things and starts to learn about what the world is like. And then, of course, via the Hogwarts Express, when he's taken off to the castle where he's going to be a student. There is one important fact that people should know is that they also stop at the bank and they Mm. pick up a mysterious object. Well, it also gets a bunch of money. Yes, Gringotts. Oh, we're going to talk about Gringotts. I'm going to just bring all of my complaints from Witch Please into your podcast. Get ready. (laughs) He's based off to Hogwarts where he starts to get a sense of the politics of the wizarding world and the fact that there are these sort of old wizarding families like the Malfoys who fancy themselves better and then Muggleborns like his new eventual friend Hermione who come from non-magical families who are sort of treated as lower. He starts to learn that his parents had reputations, that he has a reputation in this world. And a lot of the book is about that, like him just finding his way and starting to get his feet under him. And then the sort of Like, I don't know, is that B-plot? Because the A-plot is this whole Philosopher's Stone nonsense. Yeah, which I think is one of the things that's always fascinated me the most about the Harry Potter books. And I'm going to really try to restrain myself to just talking about the first one. It's so hard to revisit this property, both the book and the film. 
and not be like, oh, look at that groundwork. She's laying for book number five. And like, yeah. oh, that's going to pay off in that other thing. And you're just like, no, you yep. have to just be able to talk about this one 300-page book and, and this also the exceedingly long film. Don't pay off that she's changed. Anyway, so... Yes, the retconning. What the else happens? aggressive we've, retconning. We've got... Yes, oh my God. <laughs> put out her. <laughs> we've got one minute left. So he gets really involved in the wizarding sport, which is called Quidditch and doesn't make any sense. And meanwhile, he starts to suspect that the very mean professor at Hogwarts, Snape, the potions master, is involved in a scheme to find the Philosopher's Stone, which has been hidden in Hogwarts, and use it to bring back Voldemort, the evil wizard who killed Harry's parents. Snape turns out to be a hilarious misdirect, which he will continue to be in every book in this series. And Harry will never learn his lesson ever because Harry is not very bright. And it turns out that the actual villain is Professor Quirrell. Yeah, Snape's a totally normal adult man who just hates a specific child for some reason. I mean, Snape's a very bad person, (laughs) but he's like, uh, Dursley's bad, not Voldemort bad, which are different scales of bad. Like, there's child yeah. abuse and then there's genocide, and we frown on both. Yeah. He's more like your drunken uncle who just scowls at you at the holiday period, and he's just like, why doesn't he like me? He just doesn't. He just doesn't. He's just Your father me. saved my life, so I hate you for that reason. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yup. Like, small spoiler alert, the actual reason is that he just wanted to bone Harry's mom. <laughs> Didn't everyone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, our five minutes is over. It turns out it's Quirrell the end. Yes. <laughs> and that Dumbledore set Harry up to nearly be murdered yeah. in the first of what will also happen in, in every, every single, single book. book. And yet he will somehow be set up as a wise and beneficent mentor figure, not yet another adult abusing this poor child. Where are the responsible adults? Yeah. yeah, that's how we know it's YA. <laughs> so welcome to our podcast. We're celebrating Harry Potter, the book and film series that you love, which is all about child abuse. Yeah. Uh, it's also about the tragedy of parental death. It's also about blood <laughs> quantum. <laughs> Brenna, go to your corner. It's also about the rise of fascism in Britain during the 1940s. Mm, it's Wait, about are so we not talking? Things. We're not talking Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> oh, no. Mm. Oh, no, but the subtext is all there. Anyway, listen, the British fascist symbol was a lightning bolt. Oh. I didn't know that. I did not know that. That's why I invited you. That's why we invited you, Hannah. So our subtext? What? Now that we've done done the summary, and it was so efficient, thanks so much. (laughs) Just as a quick note of clarification, usually we're at the 20-minute mark by this point, so we have gained almost nine minutes. Oh, sure. Just co-host the show with Hannah, then. (laughs) Listen, I'm an excellent and extremely hostile co-host, so. I was going to ask Hannah if she'd like to tell us in a few sentences about her podcast, Witch Please. Oh, yeah. So Witch Please is a podcast that I made from, oh, 2014, maybe? Oh, so much. Sorry. I'm just going to keep swearing. You can split them all out, Joe. Okay. That I made for about three years with my friend Marcel, where we reread all of the books and rewatched all of the movies and talked about them one by one, very similarly to how you do it on this podcast, except we only talked about Harry Potter stuff with a particular focus on feminist and critical race theory. 
as well as sort of narrative perspective to try to just get a better grasp on what's actually going on in these books. So we mostly refer to it as our feminist Harry Potter podcast, where we nice. talk about how Hermione is significantly more competent than yes. either of the other characters, and yes. that if J.K. Rowling had not been publishing in a young adult publishing environment in which women-fronted books were still frowned upon, Hermione would undeniably have been the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Well, and even to the extent that J.K. Rowling herself changed her name in order to get this published. I mean, yeah. the context under which she had to go to great lengths just to get this manuscript into someone's hands mm-hmm. who would agree to give her the green light is kind of ridiculous. Partially, I think, because we have the boon of hindsight where we can say, oh, but look, Harry Potter, such an esteemed property, and it sold 450 million copies. Why would people have said no? And yet, people say no all the time. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a little bit shocking when you look at this because it is such a classical YA text in the mode of construction, the character archetypes, you know, everything about it. And then you just throw in a dash of wizarding and you've got the recipe for a bestseller. Yeah, yeah, you sure do. I still struggle to really wrap my head around what it is that makes these books so remarkably popular. Popular to a point where they don't even really fall into the same category as most other books Mm. anymore. The way that people relate to the Harry Potter world, the way that they reread the books, the way Mm -hmm. that they use the books as a sort of moral text through which to understand contemporary politics and their own personalities and their ways of navigating the world feel significantly more like how people use religious texts than anything else. Like there's a non-religious Bible for a lot of readers and There's nothing, like, from a literary critical perspective, like, they're not better than other books. Like, they're really good. I really, like, rereading this book, I was like, oh, this is super good. Like, this is a real delight to read. But lots of books are delightful. Yeah. Now, Hannah, you haven't had the advantage of listening to our fantastic episode that's uh, dropping shortly on Mm. after. At this point, people will have heard it. Hey, it's better than that. I'd like to point out at this moment that Joe did not finish after. Sorry. Go on. <sighs> Joe? <laughs> this is how you want to use our Harry Potter time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm extremely petty. I think we can agree that, that shaming Joe is going to be a real priority of this episode. I mean, this is just my life at every junction. I but... <laughs> can't do a podcast that doesn't have like a 75% misandry quotient. Sorry. <laughs> But one of the things that came up in our discussion about after was why people gravitated to that and turned it into a monster hit when it is demonstrably worse than Mm -hmm. so many other forms of erotica and also YA and, And you know, even just sexual awakening and also garbage fires. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a theory that ties those two things together, which is that books that explode in these particular ways do so because... They emerge alongside new formations of online community and become the sort of site of new forms of community development. Mm. So Harry Potter really overlaps significantly with the development of online fanfiction communities. Mm -hmm. Yes. And with the sort of massive expansion of the ways that people could use the internet to share fanfiction, to engage with one another about fanish texts. 
And fairly early on, Rowling proved to not be very interested in sort of cracking down on that kind of stuff, um, which meant that world was allowed to flourish. Yeah. yeah. And I think similarly, after is is less, I mean, I haven't read it and I'm not gonna. Do Don't, not. You can't make me, I won't do it. <laughs> we would never ask you to. We like you as a yeah, person. Yeah, thanks. But it is also emerging around this moment of a sort of new era of fan fiction where fan fiction and in general sort of self-published YA is not only getting shared online, but it's actually getting sort of taken seriously and taken up by publishers who have recognized that there's an audience there. So again, I think that both of them are these sort of spikes, spikes of attention that that coincide with new forms of digital engagement. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter has had longevity because in addition to having coincided with this really interesting publishing and reading cultural moment, also it's good. Yeah. Yeah. After we'll die. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also, I mean, it's spurred so many other communities. Like in many ways, Mm -hmm. John Green's fandom emerges directly out of Harry Potter fandom. Like they are so deeply interlinked. Really? The thing that got John and Hank Green noticed by fan community uh, was it's like a song that Hank Green wrote about waiting for the last book to drop. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cute. Yeah. And so that was what like the Vlogbrothers was already a thing, but that was their first post to ever hit a million views. And it was from that point that the two fandoms, like they worked together on a lot of like charitable efforts and stuff from that point on. And so there's a real sense in which there was a kind of passing of the torch of fandom with the last book. And so many of those fans would consider themselves fans of both. Which is really interesting because they really couldn't be more different, like yeah. in terms of the corner of YA that they have carved out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But I think that adds to the longevity, right? This yes. idea that the fandom didn't just coalesce around a text, they morphed and changed and built new communities as they became fans of other texts. And like uh, Maureen Johnson is another author who is very much part of that world. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's been a lot of really popular YA of all sort of different stripes that has found its footing because of the support of that fandom. So it's just interesting how, I don't know, I think like in comparison, something like Twilight, which is of a not dissimilar period of time, Mm -hmm. didn't, right? It didn't have the same kind of lasting power. Those fans, I mean, I think they turned into Fifty Shades of Grey fans and maybe they (laughs) turned into after fans, but like... Quite possibly. They haven't had the same cultural weight as those... Harry Potter fans have had. Yeah. I suspect actually that those Twilight to Fifty Shades fans have gone into the world of like Kindle Unlimited self-published romance. Right. I think that's where they got siphoned off to, which is like a huge segment of Goodreads. It is a huge segment of Goodreads. So that's an example of fandoms that are shifting from text to text and really mm-hmm. almost like losing their identity in that way. So they're they're more drawn to particular subgenres. Mm-hmm. In this case, not even YA anymore. But I wonder if one of the reasons I mean, I'll confess I still don't understand the appeal, the longevity of John Green. But I think wow. for Harry Potter in particular, it's because Rowling gives us enough to let our creative energies go, Mm. but she doesn't restrain us to say, I was talking about it with my husband because he loves, he loves the films first and Mm. then the book second, but he always looks at it and says, but this is one school. We know there are at least two others in Europe. And then of course, before Fantastic Beasts came along and 
you know, trapped the bed a little bit. <laughs> there was always the question of like, what, what about the rest of the world? And wouldn't it be great to get the story of how Hogwarts became a school, like tell the origin story with the four different houses. Mm-hmm. There's so many different types of stories to be told in this world that people see it as limitless. And Rowling does do a good job of encouraging that. She's like, as long as you continue to pay me millions and millions <laughs> of dollars, I'm cool, go off and do your own thing. Yeah. Joe, may I tell you that it's rolling? Rowling? It's rolling. And here's (laughs) a really good way to remember is the following excellent joke. How did Harry Potter get down the hill? Rolling. No, no, that's not how you respond to a joke, Joe. How (laughs) did Harry Potter get down the hill? I don't know, Hannah. How did he get down the hill? Walking. JK, rolling. Uh, uh... (laughs) That is so bad. Oh my God. It's a great joke. Okay, Hannah, now you go to your corner. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes, your point about world building, I was really thinking, right, as I was rereading this book about that question of to what degree Rowling is an effective world builder. Because my actual theory about Rowling is that she is a very bad world builder Mm. and that that is why... She's leaving so many gaps for us to fill in. Yes, that is exactly it. That's why there's so much fan fiction. Because there's massive holes. Like, there's just massive holes throughout everything about this series. Because she is not a traditional fantasy world builder. She is a YA author. She is attentive to the internal lives of young people. That's what she cares about. And I think she evokes those extremely well. I think what is... The strongest part of this book is the magic of watching this young person learn something new about himself and learn something new about the world and learn about his family and and how exciting that feels to like go on that journey with him. When you if you if you start to prize apart any of the details of this world, it scatters like a house of cards. And I think that that has made a lot of space for lots of different kinds of fan fiction, for lots of different kinds of fan theories, because people are constantly trying to like patch up those gaps, that there's space in there for people to find their way in. I also think that's why she failed so phenomenally with the magic in North America and Fantastic Beasts work, because she's a bad world builder, and that expanding her wizarding world into North America was, I think, beyond her skill set. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we don't need to go down that garden path, but... Let's talk about how great this book is. Yeah, <laughs> let's not talk about the Titanic and switching babies. Let's move on. <laughs> I have no idea what any of you are talking about. What's your favorite uh... part of this book? <laughs> My favorite part of this book? Yes. It's a controversial position. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Brenna I'm comes out swinging. so excited to find out what this is going to be. Go! My favorite part of the book is Ron. Oh, Wow! Wow. Okay, Brenna, go back to your corner. (laughs) Explain. I really like Ron, and I really like the way he is subtly on his own growth trajectory through this first book. I like the way he occasionally gets enough of the center stage that you realize it. Like, I'm thinking about the way he lives his entire life in the shadows of these incredibly larger-than-life older brothers and this family that takes up so much space and he seems to take up the least of anyone in it except maybe Ginny but she's not even a character in this book so no and when she comes along later she sort of 
absorbs the light. But I, there's something about <laughs> the way in which we get these little moments, like when he looks in the mirror and the thing that he wants most in the world is to just be the Quidditch cup guy and like... <laughs> and like be a head boy. And be it? head boy, right? Yeah these accomplishments that have happened before but most importantly what he wants when he looks in that mirror is to stand alone in those accomplishments right like to be the only person taking up the space mm -hmm. and then we get this great scene one of the sort of most significant components of the climax where Ron who we spend the whole book thinking really doesn't actually know how to do anything with any success right. but he's really good at chess and guess what saves their friggin lives <laughs> chess mm. <laughs> Not at all convenient, but sure. <laughs> Listen, even more significantly, Ron, I think building on what you're saying is not just his capacity for, you know, the fact that he's a good chess player, but, but his also willingness to sacrifice himself. Yes, exactly. Yes. That he in that moment is willing to not be the hero, even though that's what we know he wants more than anything else. And that's what I mean about a trajectory of growth. And I also think it's significant because it's a moment when, you know, normally Hermione is the problem solver, right? Hermione mm -hmm. can see her way out of the situation. So not only is he the one who can see his way out of the situation, but he's also the first one of them to recognize that Harry's the one who has to go all the way through. Yeah. Like that they're yeah. actually going to have to not do it all together. The two of them have particular skills that are there to support Harry's journey through. It's almost the first time the three of them as a friend group recognize that. I like Ron. And I know that nobody likes Ron, but I do. I'm sure not nobody likes him. <laughs> he's just not a popular choice because he's <laughs> objectively the worst character. Well. <laughs> You're objectively the worst character. True. That is also true. <laughs> I... For very similar reasons to the reasons why you like Ron, I love Neville. I was going to say, Neville oh. feels like a junior version of Ron's arc. Oh my god. Yes, I would agree with that. Rereading the book last night, when it gets to that scene where Dumbledore is giving out the points, and it's 50 points each yeah. to the three heroes yeah. who are get to continue to be the heroes of the story throughout the whole series, and then it's 10 points to Neville, and I weep every time I read that scene. Every Aww. single time. I'm like, he stood up to his friends. <laughs> yeah, me in bed, 1am, weeping. The funny thing is, too, that Dumbledore is such... You can tell that Rowling thinks that she is also Dumbledore because she mm -hmm. is the person pulling all the strings. But Dumbledore is such a savvy showman that, of course, he also waits until the end to deliver the 10 points. You could have led with 10, <laughs> but he waited and made Neville the hero. May I share with you both a screen cap that I just took right before getting on this call? Yes. I want to share this with you because... In that scene in which we really see Dumbledore at his manipulative best, we get this one shot of two Slytherins responding to watching their house <laughs> lose the cup. And it's such a good reminder that these are 11-year-olds. Yeah, they're children. Who a, like, 100-year-old man is like, ha <laughs> suckers, you thought you were going to win, but you're not. It's like, they are... 11, yep. Dumbledore. Could you chill for a sec? He cannot. No, he absolutely cannot. Not for even a second. I say this with due caution because I recognize that in the intervening years, large fandoms have emerged for Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs. But in this first book, it really is you are either sorted into the good house, the bad house, or one of those two other houses. And we're never <laughs> even going to tell you who's in them. No, that's just where the suckers go. Yeah. 
in this first book, like, we barely learn the names of any of the kids who are sorted into the other two houses, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. the fat lady in the portrait has a bigger character presence than those two other houses. As well she should, (laughs) because she's an icon. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, I know we are not quite at the film part yet, but I will say that book versus film, the book gives us evidence that that sort of divisive, like, Gryffindors are good, Slytherins are bad thing is really coming through Harry's perspective as a child. Mm. And when the adults around him speak, it's very evident that they don't think of the houses in that way. And in the movie, there's a scene, like, the sorting scene, McGonagall, like, when she says Slytherin, she looks at Malfoy (laughs) like, the murder house full of murderers, (laughs) like that 11-year-old over there. There's also an interesting division in this book that I had completely forgotten about, which is that the houses take their classes separately. So they're not mm-hmm. even interacting with one another, which makes no sense and well, they... only really serves to set up extra divisions between the different houses. Because if you never interacted with anybody else, you would obviously only ever think your house was great. And everybody else. They take their classes with other houses. They just only take them with one other house at a time. So like Gryffindor has first year potions with Slytherin. Right. But we only ever see Gryffindor with Slytherin. Yes, because Harry is an unreliable narrator. Sorry, this is just witch please redux. But it's (laughs) because Harry is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Full culture. (laughs) Well, I mean, welcome back to YA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's one of, I mean, one of the pleasures of the series is certainly the way that we get to watch the world change as Harry's perspective expands and he starts to see more shades of gray. But it's quite fun, I think, in rereading this book to see, again, when the professors talk, like McGonagall makes a joke about how Snape will never let her live it down if Slytherins win again. And it's like, oh, you're colleagues. Like, your colleagues and you're hanging out in the staff room, like, sort of jabbing each other about whose house is winning the Quidditch Cup. Like, you were adults. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know that they're getting drunk after these great dinners or, like, the Halloween or the Christmas special. (laughs) Do you just call their meal the Christmas special? (laughs) Yes, 100%. That's what it's called. (laughs) You know, that fancy thing that heralds in a new year but also gives you presents. That scene where Hagrid gets drunk and kisses McGonagall on the cheek and she blushes and she loves it. You're like, oh, those two have hooked up. Absolutely. (laughs) Everyone knows McGonagall was like a dirty bird back in the day. Come on, for sure. Undeniably. Uh, Joe introduced the movie. (laughs) Anyway, the book's great. Don't worry, we, we talk a lot about, about the, book. the book still. We mostly yeah. just talk about the book. I don't know why people who don't read listen to us. Go on. It's not untrue. <laughs> All right, let's play the trailer. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? We are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. Good afternoon, class. Welcome to your first flying lesson. 
Stick your right hand over the broom and say up. I was gonna hum along to it. Do, 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 do. Okay, so this movie was an automatic slam dunk, and you can tell because they sunk a crap ton of money into this. But one of the, I think, most interesting lasting pieces of the film series is its sheer propensity of amazing character actors, like 98% of whom are British. Oh, yeah. It's every British character actor has been in one of the Harry Potter movies. Yeah, like, if you were a British actor and you didn't get a role in one of these, <laughs> it was like... No one liked you. Go to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus the soundtrack. Yeah, speaking of the soundtrack, can I just say that this... And I recognize that most people have watched this movie more than once. <laughs> but it felt utterly absurd to me to watch this movie in the summertime. This is not a summer movie. This is a Christmas movie. 100% a Christmas movie. Yeah, because I saw it one time at Christmas. I think of that whole soundtrack as being like Christmas related. Literally everything that's happening in the film feels like it's wintertime the whole time to me. And I just felt so weird watching it in August. Hmm. That is accurate. It is. They are all (laughs) extremely Christmas hued films. Mm hmm. It is hard because, like, a lot of it takes place in the summer, and yet they feel Christmassy. When I got to the part in the book where they're like, we were getting ready for exams and it was so hot. I was like, it was never hot at Hogwarts. What are you talking about? (laughs) Never hot at Hogwarts. Well, I think part of what you're talking about, Brenna, is that these films were almost all released in time for the holidays because Mm -hmm. that is the most lucrative time for box office. Because people don't like their families and they need to go watch movies to get away from them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, uh, another not at all technical film term is the 12 days of Christmas at the box office, where <laughs> basically you take the the weekend of Christmas and then the weekend of New Year's, and every day in between that 10 to 12 day period more or less acts like a long weekend. Oh, hmm. The strategic decision by Warner Brothers to release these films at the end of November so that you then had an entire Christmas run so people needed to get away from their families in the lead up to Christmas. They could, but then they could also take their families for that 12-day period. And it very much was an event in that Mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. And that's why the films, like, they just pumped money into these. These these films, I think, started with $150 million budgets, which is astronomical. We will not cover another movie on this podcast outside of The Hunger Games that Mm -hmm. had the same amount of financial investment in the property to make sure that it came out right. And I'm making air quotes right now, which you can't see. The other surefire indication that a ton of money is being pumped into a film and that you are trying to make it a classic is that you hire John Williams to score it. Mm-hmm. Yes, true. Like, there's nothing like a John Williams score to tell you right from the beginning of a film, oh, this is cinematically significant. <laughs> yes. Here I go. I'm being whisked. <laughs> being whisked. There is an amazing place in Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, where the Jurassic Park world 
literally bridges onto the Harry Potter world. Like there is a bridge that you cross over to get from one to the other. Is it called the Hannah McGregor Bridge? Yes, it is the Bridge of Hannah McGregor. I stood on it and I closed my eyes and I twirled and I twirled. Are there two properties you love more than those two properties? Maybe Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> if you can add that in, then I'm in heaven. But as you as you pass out of Jurassic Park, you're passing through. It's like the Jurassic Park score is going and then as you cross over the bridge, you can hear it fade into the Harry Potter score. And it's like wow. meetings of the John Williams over the bridge. It's just magical. A fun fact about me is my grade nine music class learned one song and it was the theme to Jurassic Park. That is a fun fact about you. <laughs> I played great. it on the flute. That's great. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie is also great. <laughs> Joe, do you want to do the cast list? Oh. Yes, I can absolutely do the cast list. I could probably do it off memory too, but I will look it up just to make sure I don't miss anybody. Who's that young upstart who plays the Harry Potter? Oh, none of the kids are well known and they've never amounted to anything. <laughs> I mean, one of them hasn't. Aww. <laughs> that felt personal. Mm-hmm. And it's for good reason because he can only make one face and it's Ashuk's twisty face. I saw him in that movie where he drove an old lady around. Mm. Sounds fake. I'm just going to cut this all out. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be no podcast if you cut this all out. Sorry, do the cast. Okay, so in the role of Dumbledore or Dumbledore, if you're my husband, it's Richard (laughs) Harris. Boo. Claimed thespian Richard Harris, who unfortunately passed away, so we only get two movies with him. Whereas I think every other member of the cast who isn't fired, aka looking at you, What's her name? Look at you, what's her name? <laughs> She's so insignificant. I'm just, every time I watch this first film, I'm like, oh, right. That woman who teaches them how to fly with the brooms and then she got fired. Oh, I love so her. Never like, see I like her, her as again. an actress in real life. Madam Hooch? Yeah, Madam Hooch. I wanted to call her Tonks and I was like, nope. Mm-mm. It's the other canonical lesbian. More or less, yeah. What's her name? Oh, you're going to make me look it up, are you? I am. I thought you already had the IMDb open in front of you. I do, but there's so many people in this movie yeah, that it's like true. scroll and scroll and yeah. scroll a little bit. Like, also, yeah. I don't need to know Dimpled Woman on Train IMDb. Like, get your stuff together. Okay. It's Zoe Wanamaker. Yeah, I love her. She's on a sitcom called My Family that is really great. Why did she get fired? Too gay? No. <laughs> Not gay enough? Mm both of those things at the same time. <laughs> if I remember correctly, and this is totally speculative, I believe she was critical of the production. <laughs> I think she said, well, oh, stupid. I thought it was going to have a bigger part. Ooh. And it was kind of like, lady. Did you read the book? You're not an important character. <laughs> no. Check yourself. So, uh, okay, we've got Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall. My favorite, favorite professor. <laughs> yeah, she's the best professor. Yeah, of course. Other opinions are wrong. Yes. Everybody else, go away. (laughs) Uh, Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid. He's my favorite groundskeeper. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God, when he keeps referring to himself as mummy. Yes. uh, uh, We stand a non-toxic masculine legend. It's so true. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This episode's going to be two minutes long. (laughs) <laughs> no, sorry, I'm I'm scrolling and it's like, do we talk about the kids? I was gonna do all the all the faculty members. We've got appearances by John Cleese, David Bradley, obviously Alan Rickman is the one that everybody 
else loves a lot. Ugh. Who plays Ollivander? That's a that's a famous guy. That's John Hurt. Yeah. Yeah. He's real sinister. I love it. He is so much more sinister than I remember in both book and mm-hmm. film. Yeah, legit like, sinister. Wow, you're bringing out just a little bit too much admiration for he who shall not be named. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, so then, of course, we've got the kids who, at the time, were absolute nobodies. And this was the greatest risk that the film had to deal with. And if I remember correctly, there were people who were quite unkind to them, because these were novice children. And you can tell, oh, they're acting so hard. (laughs) It's so cute. So Daniel Radcliffe is Harry. I actually think that he's quite good i mean he's a child actor there's no mm-hmm. getting around that but you can see the kind of actor that he will become rupert grint is passable i would actually argue that emma watson is borderline terrible in a lot of her line <laughs> deliveries it's so funny how much she moves her mouth like <laughs> i feel like she must have in early takes been mumbling or something because mm. it feels like somebody who has been told to talk with a great deal of precision. It's yes. like, whoa. It's almost like, attack the line. Like, Harry, no. <laughs> You're not biting anything when you deliver that. Aw, she's chewing the scenery. That's what she thought it meant. Just a little bit. Which is hilarious because some people would argue that she's gone on to become the best of the three of them in terms of her future roles. She has certainly gone on to become the most famous of the three of them. That I this think is undeniable. Is true. Yes. She has the most feminist book clubs of the three of them. Yeah. Right. We've got Tom Felton as Draco. Mm-hmm. We've got Matthew Lewis as Neville. And my favorite is Alfred Enoch. He plays the character of Dean. And he has no memorable part in any of this entire movie series. And then randomly goes on to star in that Shonda Rhimes show, How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, does he? Yeah. Good for him. Proud of you, Dean. Yeah. It's so fun rewatching this movie and seeing all of them as tiny babies because I've watched the later movies so much more because the last three movies are my favorites. Yeah. I never saw them. Oh, I recommend them. Brenna. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement. Way to, way to undersell it there, Hannah. I mean, I'm not going to freak out at her. Just like, I think, <laughs> I think they're good. I think it's worth your time. <laughs> And they're on Netflix. You've, you've watched one of the two worst movies in the series by watching this one. This is, I think, the third worst. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so... Anyway. So one other important thing to note is that for the first two films, we have the same director. Mm-hmm. And Brenna, you'll be excited to know that it is Chris Columbus. And he is the same man who directed I Love You, Beth Cooper. Yeah. Because I brought it yeah. up during that episode and in I a very mad. incredulous, like, what? Well, it doesn't make any sense that he made such a bad movie. Like, it makes no sense at all that that movie was so bad. Um, I have two notes on the production. Okay. Okay, my first note is that I can't tell the first Dumbledore and the second Dumbledore apart. The second Dumbledore is more of a hippie. The second Dumbledore delivers every line in the most incomprehensible fashion possible. Can't tell them apart. Sorry. When white men age to a certain point, I can't tell them apart regardless of how hard they might try. Oh, and yeah. So when you, oh, they look the same. Oh, yeah. When you have an elderly white man playing another elderly white man, my brain just shuts down. Like, I just can't. So that's the first point. My second point is I was shocked at how good this movie still looks so much later. 
Yeah, there's a couple of scenes of dodgy CGI, but for the most oh, part, it's looking that, pretty good. That's like dog. Yeah, the dog. Like, I hate, <laughs> generally speaking, I hate CGI. Like, I am much more a practical effects person. That's oh, why yeah. I was so glad when Star Wars found its way again. And normally CGI turns me right off. But really, actually, for me, the only part that I found quite cringy were the ghosts. Oh, interesting. But the ghosts looked, to me, the ghosts looked bad, like, back then. But I was surprised at how good everything looks. I did watch the whole thing on my phone. Don't know if that had an impact. That's oh. the way cinema's meant to be watched. It might have. That <laughs> might have had a small impact. I think the really, really heavily CGI'd stuff, like, like, Fluffy have aged badly. Yeah, the troll as well. Yeah, but the series does a good job, I think, of using practical effects where practical effects are possible, particularly around those really quintessential moments like seeing the Hogwarts Express for the first time, mm, like so seeing good. Hogwarts itself for the first time, the way it appears over the like misty waters. Like and those scenes are all practical effects and so they are every bit as magical now as they were whenever this movie came out. There's no way of knowing. I think even some of the action sequences like the chess game and The chess game looks amazing, I think. Chess game's good. Mm-hmm. The flying is bad. Yeah, the flying's pretty bad. Yeah. yeah, the flying was bad then, though, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like I didn't find it persuasive then. I guess here's here's where I'm at. I expected to be like, "Ooh, this aged really badly," but really, I was just kind of like, the stuff I didn't like then, I still don't like, and the stuff that I liked then is still fine. Which I think is sort of the best compliment you can possibly pay a heavily CGI movie. Mm. Like, I find much of Lord of the Rings unwatchable, and all of The Hobbit unwatchable already. Really, I do. Mm. Mm-hmm. I haven't revisited it in quite some time. Brenna, these takes are so hot. I can't <laughs> I can't look directly at them. Which is funny because Brenna's usually the one telling me, don't say that. We can't afford to have the after fandom or the kissing booth fandom come after us. You're too afraid of the but, after oh, fandom, sure. but you're not afraid of the Lord of the Rings fandom? Yeah. I mean, okay. let's face it. They're never going to listen to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, no. First of all, my policy, as you know, is hate clicks are still clicks. But also... <laughs> I think that, no, it's gone. Never mind. You guys take it from here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Can I talk about one change that really struck me as I was reading, rereading and then rewatching this time around? Yes. Mm -hmm. It is how central in the first off, how the best part of this book is the first 80 pages is the gradual introduction of this abused and neglected child who not only has led a mundane life, but has led a remarkably sheltered life because his family hates him and won't even take him like he's never been to london before like right he has lived no life and then all of a sudden he gets to enter this magical world where he has mobility and wealth and status and and, yeah yeah, and and people who take him seriously and care who he is and and watching him and where he has family like even if they are dead at least people will talk to him about his parents he has a history he's rooted in a culture and in a people in a way that gives his life meaning and context and it's so beautiful watching that happen and one of the i think the really interesting things the book does is sit with his doubt which lasts for such a long time he is so convinced like until he's like two months into being at hogwarts he's so convinced that somebody's gonna notice that he doesn't belong and the scene where he's getting his wand the scene where he's getting sorted like at every step of the way he's so sure that somebody's gonna look at him and be like oh sorry we made a mistake you're not really a wizard you have to go home now and 
I think that's really beautiful, like how much mm. it sits in his doubt, even mm-hmm. long after we've seen, you know, dragons and goblins and magical flying things. He still has that doubt because trauma doesn't disappear overnight. Yes. It lasts and it stays with you. And in the movie, it, it disappears so quickly. Yes. And for me, that really key difference is the wand scene. Because in the book, when the wands don't work, nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's not like he's super powerful and like going to destroy the store. It's just like, it's a dud. Yeah, exactly. And so it leaves him standing there holding a wand, feeling like a fool and immediately turning that. And an imposter. Yes, exactly. But in the movie, there's no space for doubt. It's right Mm -hmm. from the get-go. It's like, hand you wand, oh, you blew up a vase. It's like, okay, well, I see how that is more cinematic. It's more Mm -hmm. exciting to look at. But you lose this lose like really key kernel of what makes his story so moving. Okay, you guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thanks to Joe's tardiness. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sorry. I'm going to have to go because the baby needs a washing. Um, so just want to thank you again for that, Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to leave you guys to finish out the conversation. My um, bingo card, should you should you want his later, was going to be uh, CGI. CGI was my bingo card. Right. Okay. Good good contribution. Thanks. <laughs> Love you. Mean it. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. What what's happening for the rest of this? So I think that's a really interesting point, and you're not wrong. That never am. <laughs> oh, it's gonna go like this, is it, Hannah? Ah. No, you're absolutely not wrong because Brenda and I have seen this time and time again in these adaptations that it's a little bit of mistrusting your audience and being like, okay, we can't just let something play out. We have to make it bombastic and visually compelling. And also, it's so weird in this particular adaptation because Columbus is so slavishly devoted to so many things in (laughs) Rowling's book. This is arguably one of the most straightforward cinematic adaptations that we have seen on this entire podcast. And wildly overlong, I think for exactly that reason. Like, this movie does not need to be two and a half hours long. It is two and a half hours because they were unwilling to cut any key scenes. Oh, yeah. You could tell that at this point, they were actively looking to not do anything to jeopardize the relationship with Rowling. Yeah. It's like, okay, we have to make sure that every exchange, every scene, every minute encounter will be represented to the point where, God bless him, I think Seamus is a funny character, but I didn't need to see his wand backfire and blow up his face what, like three times in this movie? <laughs> it doesn't actually happen in the books at all. No, because no. it's that's meant to be Neville's role. Yeah, yeah. It is very clear the degree to which things are getting amped up for the sake of the film. And there's a bunch of things about like trying to make things more cinematic and more legible for a screen. Wow, can you hear the screaming that's coming from that side or is that just me? Is that the cat? No, no, it's just my next door neighbors. They're just very loud. Anyway, there's like lots, you know, the way that magic is represented, the way that you get into Diagon Alley. Like there's lots of things that have just been changed to make them sort of cooler to look at on the screen. But I think maybe the one that blew me away the most in terms of how much and how seemingly unnecessarily it's been totally changed is the final confrontation with Quirrell. Yeah. Hmm. 
I can't remember if I read the book first and then watched the film or if I watched the film and then went back and read the book. Like, I can't remember the the chronology, Mm. but I was very surprised that the potion piece was not included and that instead we got this extended confrontation with Quirrell in the Mm. room. The representation of that potions piece is still there because the room is encircled in fire, which I felt was their attempt to be like, oh yeah, we acknowledge, we cut this out, but we still think it's interesting. (laughs) But then, yeah, you get this whole big extended thing with him. Yeah. He's also just the least compelling of all of the villains of this entire series. Really miscast. Like that needed to be somebody who was more, more interesting. And the Voldemort is like the worst CGI. Well, yes, the Voldemort is, face is insane. There is that, yes. <laughs> you mentioned earlier critical race theory. And mm-hmm. the Quirrell role... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is it problematic? Because yeah. Yeah, for sure. the fact that it's a deliberately chosen turban, you can tell it's something where she thought, okay, this is something that could be wrapped up easily to hide something. But it's also then in the film the whitest of white man wearing a turban. Yeah, and I think that that's the sort of implication of who he is in the book as well. We don't hear his race, but the tropes that he is associated with in the book are those of the sort of British colonial figure who has gone off into the exotic Mm -hmm. East and... He's contracted something. Contracted something, precisely. And this is a very sort of age rider haggard white colonial masculinity as threatened by the Other. mysteries of the east yeah, yeah exactly and that's what's happened to Quirrell. he has gone he has left the safety and security of britain and he has contracted a virus in this mm-hmm. case Voldemort. and the visual signifier that he has come back transformed and unclean is a yeah. turban Yeah, because the fact that Rowling is so deliberate in talking about the bad smell, which we later end up attributing, obviously, to Voldemort's presence and not something else. And yet... For the large part of the book, it's, hmm, he's got a bit of a funky smell to him and also a turban. And you're thinking, oh, jeez, this is not good. Rowling's most significant failure failing as an author is the way in which she reproduces the tropes of British fiction uncritically. Right. Yeah. Cause she clearly yeah. thinks that she is paying homage, homage yeah. to homage. 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 Yes. She is, she is making efforts to acknowledge the brilliance of literature that comes out of the UK and what she is doing, I think, as you said, is she's accidentally replicating it without really paying attention to it. Yeah, and that's why I think part of what makes the book so pleasurable is that intense intertextuality. She is so heavily drawing on the history of British fantasy, the history of British school book, like, you know, books about kids going off to school. Like, there's so many tropes that she's drawing on, and her books are very pastiche in a way that makes them really fun. It's like playing finds the trope and all of these things fit together and, and they're, they're very pleasurable to read for that reason. And also they could have used like a healthy dose of being a slightly better reader, yeah. which is a, another reason why I think that there's so much great fan fiction is that I think Rowling is in many ways a better writer than she is a reader. As you can tell by the way that she reuses other literary tropes in her own books, 
And so when other readers get her material, readers who are more critically minded, they are able to take that material and sort of spin it in other ways. Yeah. Now, do you think, because the other interesting thing from, I'm assuming, but I believe that Columbus is actually an American director. Yes, he is from Pennsylvania. Yeah. So he was raised in Ohio, which maybe, maybe that's how we ended up with <laughs> Beth Cooper. But, uh, I mean, he's a, he's not an obvious choice, despite the fact that he has directed quite a number of big time films. Yeah. But if you think about it, there's obviously been efforts made to diversify some of the cast in the film. So we've got a few more people of color. Do we? Oh, I mean, not in any prominent roles, for okay. sure. I'm trying to think. We don't see the Pavel twins, but I can't yeah. remember if Dean... And we've got Lee Jordan and we've got Dean. Yeah. I, think, I believe both canonically black. Are they? Okay. Yeah. This yeah. is me skimming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I believe... Uh, I'm not... Actually, I'm not certain if Dean is canonically black, but I would actually be really surprised if he wasn't, because I think in general the movies are not good at adding diversity. Hmm. And in fact, sort of quite conspicuously and famously, Lavender Brown, who is a character with no speaking roles in the early films, is cast as a black girl. And in the fourth film, I believe, where she becomes a significant character because she starts dating Ron, they recast her as white. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a shame because I do love that role. But The films are not great at adding diversity. Like literally any of the professors could have been people of color. That would have been so easy. There's no need for any, let alone all of them to be white. Yeah. Yeah. The movies are just, are just pretty dang white. The other big, like when you're talking about critical race theory and these books, the other big thing that you have to talk about is, of course, the goblins who are referred yeah. to as swarthy and clever. Yeah. Which is pretty wild. Just in case people need us to spell it out, people have obviously inferred that that is a reference to Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goblins in British fantasy are just straight up 100% anti-Semitic tropes. And again, in the same way that she does with all of these other things, she's just drawn on those figures of goblins without any critical awareness of that context or why you might want to like push back against the association of like banking mm -hmm. suspicious small people who stick to themselves and swarthiness like why yeah. combining those three things might be a troubling thing to do in your in your book yeah yeah how do you feel about the class issues at work because we obviously have Harry going from kind of regs to riches, but then mm -hmm. you rightfully brought up the fact that Ron is also struggling with some of those issues as a member of a large family, and that's one of the reasons that Draco picks on him. I definitely never said that. You're mistaking me for Brenna. I know all that. <laughs> I thought you were chiming in with the fun stuff. <laughs> class is such an interesting part of this book as well. I was thinking actually a lot about class during this reread because Harry comes from a comfortably middle class family that is extremely concerned with their middle class status and with the kinds of conspicuous consumption that allow them to maintain that status. And there's so much concern over you know, Dudley going to the same school that Vernon went to mm -hmm. and that their house needs to look the right way and they care about what the neighbors think about them and all of this stuff. Yeah, they're very keeping up with the Joneses. Very much so. And the concerns about Harry 
and his family suggests a sort of like a racialized critique, right? That there's something as though his mother married into like a black family, for example, the way that that they have so much shame. But there's also, I think, a class reading available for that as well, that she married down and brought their family in contact with these people who are going to sort of lower the status of the family. And Harry is being punished for that by being made to live this life of conspicuous poverty, even amongst the plenty that the family otherwise has. But from a class reading of this book, sort of in light of other kinds of British youth fiction, I think it's really important to note that Ron is a genuinely like working class poor character who has to deal with poverty and the the social ramifications of it. Whereas Harry is a little princess type character Mm -hmm. whose rightful and correct place in the world is a middle class place who has been briefly and incorrectly lowered in his class status and then is returned to his proper place, which is a place of having enough money to buy whatever he wants. So even though he can empathize with Ron over like not having enough money to buy things, what's going on with him class-wise is I think really different from what's going on with Ron. And the way that that class critique also intersects with this idea that he is a chosen one style hero where Mm -hmm. the minute that he begins to make discoveries as to his power so suddenly he's a great flyer and oh my gosh that means a nimbus 2000 literally drops into his lap the number of just expensive things that just show up on his doorstep with no it's just wild Here's an invisibility cape. Hope you like it. Truly, white masculinity is a trip. It's really something. <laughs> oh, but he's got glasses, so I mean, yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. living the most privileged of life. But. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the invisibility cloak, just rereading this with a mind to the rest of the series. Maybe this is too spoilery and you need to cut it. But you know how you later on find out that the invisibility cloak is one of the Deathly Hallows? Mm-hmm. And is totally unique in the wizarding world? Yeah. And yet they just give it to an 11-year-old child and say, hmm, this will help mm-hmm. you get to the kitchen if you need, you know, a midnight Not snack. Not just that, because Dumbledore <laughs> gives it to him. And it's because Dumbledore is, as we know, training him up for something. Yes. It's the fact that when he unwraps it, Ron's like, oh, I've heard about these. They're invisibility cloaks. They're really valuable. Yeah, he makes it seem like it's a common item that only rich people can afford. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, this is a limited edition, will kill your ultimate adversary in six books. Yeah, like a completely unique magical object, only known of in myth and legend. I don't think Rowling knew it was a hallow yet when she wrote this first book. No. This is one of the struggles, I think, that are so interesting and unique to re-examining a series, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm willing to cut it a little bit of slack in that regard because... I hate slavish devotion to a pre-planned arc. Like sometimes Mm. you just discover a character is more interesting and you want to give them some leeway and you need to be able to pursue that as opposed to ending up on the how I met your mother route, which is... (laughs) You get to the end and it's like, oh no, you should have rewritten that. (laughs) Why did we lock ourselves down into this? And I apologize (laughs) to people who are like, why is he talking about a random television show? Because it's the most egregious use of like, well, we have this plan. An iconic example of pre-planning your ending too soon. 
and just absolutely muddling it as a result. And I will absolutely forgive her for like realizing that calling something a put outer is silly and renaming it later on. Yes. I just I think it is interesting in terms of the publishing history of the book to realize to really sort of reread the series and realize that she wrote this first book and once it got picked up, I think she plotted the rest of them. Yeah. I think she figured out from there, like, oh, I'm gonna get to do the rest of this series, let me figure out how it fits together. And so a number of things, like some stuff is already in here, particularly why Voldemort's after Harry, which yes. is another thing that gets written out of the movie a hundred percent. Yeah. Totally gone from the movie. Yeah. It's just that Harry is a really good student who's able to figure things out. He has no connection to Voldemort. In the yeah, film. nothing in At particular. Least this one. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it probably makes sense considering that you're trying to tell this story well, but at the same time, two and a half hours. Like, <laughs> what are you doing with your time? Be more expeditious with the way that you're telling this story if you <laughs> don't want to include all the pertinent parts. <laughs> no, you gotta include it all. Everything heaven forbid we don't get full Quidditch matches. <laughs> oh my god, there's so much Quidditch in this first book. Wow, so uh, much Quidditch. I couldn't care less about Quidditch. And every Quidditch scene, I skim. Deeply disinterested in Quidditch and its role, the role that it plays in the series. There's nothing, nothing in the world less interesting to me than, oh, what's that? Our protagonist is just a naturally skilled athlete. Boo! Oh, man, my husband and I had a full on conversation about the purpose of the snitch and how Quidditch must be the most absolutely boring game ever because you either have to race to get to that 150 point mark uh -huh. or that person catches the snitch. And as in the second example in this particular book, the match is just over in like yeah. 10 minutes. Like, what if you paid hundreds of dollars to go to that Quidditch World Cup and the Seeker just ended it in five minutes? <laughs> well, that happens in UFC too. This is not untrue. Yeah. Do you know people play Quidditch in real life? <sighs> I pass so much judgment. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't. It's great. It's it? the first okay. ever fully gender neutral sport. It's pretty remarkable. It's a really cool, very queer positive, very body positive sport. It's really interesting. I'm I know a lot of Quidditch players, let me just oh, say. Okay. And in order to make the game playable in real life, they changed the rules so that the snitch is worth significantly fewer points. Good. Because when you actually play the game, that whole snitch gives you 150 points thing is a game ruiner. Yeah. It's just not good game design. No. Well, <laughs> nobody said that she's a game master either. No, no. <laughs> but again, I've been critical of rolling through this whole thing because I spent a lot of time thinking about the limitations of this book series and because I have been very keyed into the ways in which as a public figure she has betrayed and hurt a lot of her fandom through yeah. allying herself with trans exclusive feminists in the UK through her refusing to respond to the critique of indigenous readers who felt really betrayed by her Magic in North America editions. Yeah. Like, she has just been pretty trash as a public figure. And that has made being part of the fandom really hard for a lot of people for whom these books are really important. Yeah. And also, rereading this book, in the wake of having gotten so so tapped into the fandom, rereading this book, I was like, this is good. Yeah. It's just so exciting. Be like, he's a wizard! 
Did you know? Wizard! You're a wizard, Harry. That was a spot-on Hagrid impression. Oh, thank you. Take that on the road. (laughs) It's one of those things where you can see the struggling creative artist, I think, in this first book. It was a story that she wanted to tell. She worked her ass off. Mm -hmm. She hustled around. She finally got it published. I love a lot of the other books in this series, but particularly her actions after she becomes famous and untouchable to a certain extent. Yeah. It really unfortunately belies the kind of person that she either became or maybe always was and couldn't afford to be, which sounds And I apologize that people are big fans of hers and they like her rag to riches story, but you also have a responsibility as somebody who becomes super freaking famous to not be a garbage person. <laughs> and, and I'm yet, also looking at you, Cassandra Clare. <laughs> and yet, how, how many of us could say, given this level of cultural power that we would not to become garbage people it's true i have never gotten more money than the monarchy so no i can't nor speak I. from experience nor I. I have never been the wealthiest woman in britain so <laughs> who even oh, knows it's a dream uh. <laughs> one day one day ride this podcasting jet all the way to the stars jets oh go to gosh. the stars right for sure yes cool. and all the pennies that we make off these podcasts we're for sure gonna add them up mm-hmm, for be sure able to buy that jet for sure. <laughs> okay, so final verdict, Harry Potter. It's pretty good, huh? It is. To be honest, it held up a lot better. I'm with Brenda. It held up a lot better than I remembered. I went in thinking it was going to be bad because I never watched the first two films on a rewatch. I always start with Azkaban. <laughs> oh, I start with Azkaban and then skip Goblet of Fire. Yeah. Because Goblet of Fire is the worst. Goblet of Fire is challenging but it's got a lot of really interesting good pieces it's just as a whole it's not great are you eventually going to do all of the harry potter books in this podcast is that the goal i think so part of it is is stretching them out but i'm forcing brenda to do sequels of other books so i feel like it's only right to continue on the harry potter journey you're just gonna have to try to fit that whole seventh book into a single episode yeah i'll tell you what it's real hard to do we're going to try to do the same thing with Mockingjay, so maybe we'll just do oh. <laughs> an artificial split. Yeah. Um, what about you? You mentioned that you revisit it somewhat regularly? No. No. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting. You're just making up so many facts about me. This is true. I read them on the internet. They must be true. Uh, yeah. I have not reread this book since we made Witch Please. Mm. And that was the first time I had ever read the series all the way through. Okay. And this is the first time I've read one of the books since I read it all the way through for making that podcast. So I was really not sure how making that podcast and spending a ton of time thinking about the series and talking to people and being part of the fandom and having endless conversations about the minutiae of the books, how that was going to change my enjoyment of them. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me emotionally how much opening this book and starting to read felt like coming home to something. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot and writing a little bit, actually. I have an article that came out not too long ago about Harry Potter reread podcasts oh, as yes. a genre and the kinds of cultural work they do. Yeah. And in that article, I think a lot about 
rereading itself as an activity. And books that we reread frequently throughout our lives become these really interesting registers of how we ourselves as writers and think as readers and thinkers transform. So the books remain at least textually stable, but we come back to them again and again, and they are different because we are different people. And so they are at once comforting and also like, it's like a relationship, right? That you're in a relationship with something that someone who is ostensibly the same person, but because you are changing, they are also changing. And that experience of going back to a text that has been really important to you and seeing what parts still resonate, what parts read differently, what stands out to you now that you haven't noticed before, you know, what hits you emotionally, like, that's a really exciting experience, I think. It is, particularly with something as meaty as Harry Potter, right, where there's a lot of different avenues that you as an individual will change and alter and grow and evolve around. Because mm-hmm. I remember when I first read this, would have been back in the early 2000s. Obviously, I'm a completely different person, but I read this uncritically. Like, yeah. I like wizards. I read Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter good. Yes. Oh, 100%. Like, I read the books as they came out because I was the right age for them. And there was no part of me as like a grade 12 student reading one of these books who was like, oh, but let me think about the representation of gender and race in these books. It was like, I am deeply invested in this plot. I wish I was in this world. I want to imagine what house I would be sorted into. I want to picture myself being a student at Hogwarts. I would have written fan fiction if I knew fan fiction was a thing at the time, which I absolutely didn't. (laughs) I just loved the world and getting to come back to them and think critically about them has been really fun. And it has also been really exciting to realize that spending a lot of time thinking critically about them has not reduced the pleasure. Yeah, It's nice when you can come back to something and find that you can still get some joy out of it. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. So before we wrap up, I want to know what house are you? Okay. So I'm definitely a Ravenclaw. Yes! Yes! There is this really great Tumblr called, I believe it's called Sorting Hat Chats. Okay. And... It's like you take a little quiz, it'll tell you where you end up? No, absolutely not. No, it is an elaborate, lengthy evaluation of the whole sorting system, which forwards the theory that people have primary and secondary houses, which helps to explain why Hermione seems like such a Ravenclaw that ends up in... Gryffindor or why Neville seems like such a Hufflepuff but ends up in Gryffindor and that is that your primary house is the house of your values the thing you most stand for but your secondary house is the house of your method the way you Mm. go about doing things so Hermione is a Gryffindor primary but a Ravenclaw secondary you can really see the degree to which she uses books as a way to solve problems while she's a Gryffindor because what really motivates her is trying to do good in the world rather than learning for learning, learning's own sake, right? She's not interested in books for books own sake. She's interested in books for how they can actually help her do things in the world. Mm-hmm. So Ooh, fascinating. I suspect that I've got some Gryffindor somewhere in me, somewhere, <laughs> in, somewhere in my Harry Potter astrological chart. Right. I've got some Gryffindor because it's like probably my least favorite aspect of myself as a person, but I am (laughs) 
like a bit on the righteous side. And I think right. that's the worst part of Gryffindors is that they have a tendency to be pretty self-righteous. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is why Harry is very firmly positioned as a Gryffindor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Super self-righteous character. What about oh, you? Dear. So I fancy myself a Ravenclaw because mm-hmm. I like to think I'm erudite. And I've mentioned my husband a couple of times because he's such a big fan and he always counters and says, uh, no, you're obviously a Hufflepuff. <laughs> <Which> I think <laughs> is basically grounds for divorce. So <laughs> No, actually Hufflepuff is the only reasonable and ethical house in this school, so you should be proud. <laughs> Which is why they get no airtime in the books or the movies. Because <laughs> yeah. they are not interesting because they are probably the closest to real people. <laughs> I mean, there's a off-Broadway show about Hufflepuffs. Mm-hmm. The fandom has taken Hufflepuffs and run with them. Yes. It's a pretty good show, too. I Have you seen it? I have, yeah. Oh. They put it on at a repertory theater here. Great. Amazing. Yeah. It's fun. It's called Puffs, I think. Yes, it is called Puffs. There we go. In a much later book, the Sorting Hat sings a much longer song where it outlines the pedagogical strategies of each of the house founders. And Salazar Slytherin is like, uh, I'll only take the purebred wizards, yeah. which is a nightmare mm. way to found a house. And Gryffindor is like, I want the bravest. And Rowena Ravenclaw is like, I want the smartest. And then Helga Hufflepuff's like, I'll educate everybody. Yeah. And it's like, I'm oh, not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. <laughs> like, what an actually reasonable way to think about education. So yeah. I think at the end of the day, being a Hufflepuff is the only reasonable stance. Fair the rest of us are real monsters. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Bren is a Slytherin, though, right? Oh, jeez. I mean, I think we're just going to sort her into Slytherin. Yeah, for sure. Because she's not here to defend herself. Such a Slytherin. I mean, she takes such great pleasure in trolling her friends. Definitely a Slytherin move. Right. Yeah. At least a slice (laughs) of Slytherin in there somewhere. Do you want us to try to say YA bingo again? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Yes. So (laughs) do you want to play a round of YA bingo? Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think, uh, what kind of square should we put in for Harry Potter? What's already on there? Remind me. Okay. It's not a full board. We haven't memorized this made-up bingo board? What are you no. doing? Okay, so right now we have musicality, perfect date, dystopia, do bad for the greater good, mm-hmm. sexual awakening, abuse, wedding, Vancouver, supernatural elements and stunt casting okay and then you're also free to obviously add a new one to the board yeah yeah yeah. can we add something along the line of conspicuously missing adults (laughs) yes maybe absent adults or absent parents absent adults absentee adults sounds good it's not just that people are everybody in ya is orphaned It's also that you can't have any competent, useful adults in their lives. Because if you did, somebody would be like an emotional resource that they could tap into. Or somebody that if they were concerned something was going wrong, they could just go talk to them. You can't can't have a good adult in YA or the whole plot's ruined. So true. We've come across so many orphans or people with single parents where the parent is overworked mm-hmm. and they can't look after the child because they have to go off and do something. Mm-hmm. And you're just thinking, I mean, maybe the nuclear family is the fiction for a lot more people in this day and age, but it mm-hmm. 
sure as hell seems like a dark timeline for a lot of YA characters. It's pretty conspicuous in this book in particular because all three of our main protagonists, like two of them have parents, but those parents just have to get written out of the story. But Weasleys are like off vacationing somewhere. Hermione's parents are always off screen. But also all of the professors have to be like pretty bad at their jobs. Yeah. Everybody has got to be an absent adult in some way. Yeah. The only adult who actually plays a significant role has got to be like a semi-alcoholic man-child. Sorry, Hagrid, I love you. But he's not a good adult is the thing about him. Oh, no. I mean, I'm convinced, and I'm sure there's been plenty of fan fiction written about it. I'm convinced that there are whole stories about the teachers just partying in the break room while these three (laughs) kids are off saving the world repeatedly. And everybody else is like smoking a J and like putting back the mead or something. Well, what's actually happening is that Dumbledore is like, no, 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 don't intervene. I want this 11 year old to almost die. There's a really good series of webcomics about how absolutely chaotic Dumbledore is as a character and the ways in which he uses his power to just, like, mess with kids. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of messing with kids in these books. Yeah. Anyway, absentee adults. Okay, so absentee adults. Brenna has contributed CGI. Mm -hmm. And just coming off of the comment you just made about Dumbledore, I'm going to add... Drumroll. Wizards. Gaslighting. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Because I think that'll actually come up in other books as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suspect that's going to be another really strong through line. Oh, dear. Well, Hannah, this has been an absolute delight, and I'm so glad that you were able to stay on when Brenna was like, oh, I've got to go be a good mom. I can't be like one of these adults at Hogwarts. I'm going to take care of my child. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why Brenna had to leave so early. What do you What do you think caused that? I think it was just an example of her bad timing. Like, (laughs) she's a really bad planner. Yeah. She's just not dedicated to this podcast in the way that I am. (laughs) Oh, this is good. I like this Brenna (laughs) trolling, too. She'll only find out about when she listens. Exactly. And I get to edit it, so I can just edit all of her mean comments out. (laughs) You can, but I am going to screenshot our whole text exchange and put it on Twitter. And there's nothing you can do about that. Excellent. It includes revelations about your middle name. Oh, well, that's fair. Okay. So, Hannah, if people want to connect with you, if they want to listen to Secret Feminist Agenda, how would they do so? Oh, just go on to Twitter, which is where I live. I'm at HKP McGregor on Twitter. And Secret Feminist Agenda, which is my going concern, is secretfeministagenda.com. Okay. And that comes out weekly, bi-weekly? Fortnightly now. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And if you want to follow Brenna, you can follow her at Brenna C. Gray, and that's gray with an A. You can follow me at B. Storm My Remote, and that's the letter B. You can connect with the show using the hashtag HKHSPod, or you can send us something longer at HKHSPod at gmail.com. And Hannah, you won't be here to enjoy this next one. But folks, if you want to read along, we're... Moving back into Dystopiaville with James Dashner's The Maze Runner next week. Not going to read it. No, I have begun reading it and I remember how much I dislike this book. 
I forgot it existed entirely. Fun. Can't wait to hear you discuss it. Yeah. Thankfully, I get to watch a movie with Dylan O'Brien, who is a delicious little treat. So that's (laughs) something to look forward to. The Maze Runner (laughs) next week. (laughs) And with that, Hannah, do you want to do Brenna's part of the exit? Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess that's it. Until next week, I'll see you on the page. (laughs) I will see you on the screen. (laughs) 